0: and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor-teacher, Harry Reeder.
1: If you're able, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're in Genesis chapter 50. If you'd like to turn there with me, Genesis chapter 50. We're looking at a concluding statement in the life of one of my favorite characters to study in the Word of God, And that's Joseph. This is our second sermon in the series on crisis and the Christian in biblical perspective. We did an overview of crisis and the Christian last Lord's Day. This Lord's Day, we are now beginning our case studies. Harry, how long will this series take? continue. Well, right now I'm planning on it continuing until we're able to get back away from our interim plan to our regular plan of worship and ministry. And then we'll be back to lifestyle stewardship. But I thought this would be appropriate in light of where people's hearts and minds are is to take a look from a biblical world in life. view. how does a Christian look at crisis? And then I said, well, my goodness, look at all of the case studies in the Bible. Well, the first I thought of was Joseph but then I thought, well, let's do an overview first, which is what we've done. But now we come to this, and I want to take one snippet out of the life of Joseph. And uh, I want to read this event at the conclusion of the book of Genesis, chapter 15, chapter 50, verse 15. Now, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us. And pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you. And your little ones, and thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. the grass withers, the flower fades god 's word abides forever by his grace and mercy. May his word be preached for you. please be seated, as I said earlier before the reading of god 's word we did a we started this series in light of the interim plan and the all of the events that are taking around uh, are taking place around us and this Corona crisis. And that's where, actually, when I saw that on the television, I said, well, this is a crisis in the world. Well, how does a Christian respond to this crisis? Now, folks, listen, I am going to continually call upon various, um, various times in history to talk about how Christians have preserved, have responded in crisis and want to center that upon particular characters in the Word of God who existed in the midst of crisis. And how did they handle it? But this is not new for believers. That's one of the great blessings is history. Now, unfortunately, we live in a culture that does not value history. History is just, for most people today, history is, can I remember what I had for breakfast this morning? Uh, There's a lot more to history than that. And uh, so I'm going to try to acquaint you from time to time. Last week, we looked at how Calvin equipped The company of pastors in Geneva to deal with the three plagues that hit Geneva during his lifetime. How Martin Luther equipped pastors who wrote to him and modeled for them how to deal with crisis and particularly the plagues and the viruses and the things that decimated uh, the world during his ministry in the 16th century as well. Last week, I shared with you about Richard Allen, the African-American who bought his own freedom from slavery, theologically educated, established the church. Mother Emanuel and Mother Emanuel in 1793, when everybody fled the yellow fever, they stayed. They emptied the cells of prisoners and the prisoners joined Richard Allen along with his African-American congregation and they ministered and gave nursing care. There's so many ev- so many times uh, on Today in Perspective. And by the way, there's another avenue for you during this time is the 10-minute program I do Monday through Friday, Today in Perspective. And this week's coming up an account as I deal with the fact that how in the Cyprian plagues and the Antonina plagues of the second and third century, the Church of Christ grew 40% in that decade. It's amazing what happened. As they ministered to the people that were thrown out into the streets. So when we look at something like this, here's what we say. We say this This is what we looked at this present distress. What do we do in this one? Well, first of all, we realize the doctrine of God's providence that God is sovereign. And God is at work. God, when we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and to those who are called according to his purpose. Now, let me say just a word what that isn't saying. I hear people say this all the time. All right. Be patient. Things are going to work out. Well, flash news flash, Things don't work out. That things, things have no power to work out. But let me tell you what a believer has is a promise from God that's infallible and reliable. Not that things that are at work are good, but that God is at work through things for our good, even though the things themselves might not be good. So what we said was in a crisis because of the providence of God, what we know is this. Number one, we know that. Here is an opportunity for us to grow. When crisis comes, that's a test. And test are valuable before the Lord because they tell you what you know. That's what every math test. They'll tell you what you know. They'll tell you what you don't know. They'll tell you what you need to know. So this is a time that we as individuals, as believers, and as a church can grow in the midst of the framing, molding, forming dynamics that happened in a moment of crisis, which becomes a test. And that reveals to us where we are, where we need to be, and what we need to know to get there by the grace of God. Secondly, we said last week that it becomes an opportunity to display the gospel in word and deed. I could give you many illustrations of this, but even this week, I've already seen how God's people... Find out a need for an elderly person that shut in and they were there to with proper social distancing. And let me assure everybody that the ten people that have gathered at Briarwood today have practiced social distancing, which isn't hard with ten people in a room that was built for three thousand. So it's not difficult to get social distancing done. But we can go for, we can take, we can minister in word and deed. We can do so electronically, communication, and then uh, with proper precautions, take care of one another. I know Cindy and I had the opportunity to get a medical instrument to people that needed it, that didn't have it this week, and do so and give it to them, pray with them and share the gospel and encourage one another In the Lord. But let me give you a third thing. It gives us a chance to observe and participate in God's providence. But hold it. Right now, I want to say something to you. As we go to the life of Joseph, amazing man, and the amazing moments in the life of Joseph. As we get there to take a look at him uh, in this closing moment of his life, uh, the background story is amazing. But what is amazing is now, watch God's providence. We know. God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, to those who are called according to His purpose. But here's what you've got to know God's providence is never singular, God's providence is multiple. As we look at God's providence right now in the crisis we're facing in our nation, God is multitasking. He's working in people, He's working through events. He's working in all kinds of situations. That's what he's doing. Harry, how do you know that? Well, I know that because of what the Bible says. And I know that by looking at the amazing man and the amazing moments in the life of Joseph. Folks, when we talk about God's providence, can I give you four... uh, When I try to talk about God's providence and give illustrations for the providence of God, as God works all things together, and so that we learn how to trust the Lord but not tempt the Lord as we learn how to be prudent, but don't panic as we learn how to be fearless because we are faithful. In other words, God's word and God's spirit is building up our faith. And as our faith is built up, there will be a corresponding diminishing of fear. Now, by the way, if you let your fears run rampant, there'll be a diminishing of your faith. But if you build up your faith, there'll be a diminishing of fear. And then you can be prudent, but don't panic. Then you can trust God, but not tempt God. And Joseph becomes a great example of that. Joseph has a fact. In fact, Joseph's crisis, or not only is providence is multiple in his life, his, his, his life had multiple crises. He had a personal crisis. He had a family crisis. He ended up with a nation national crisis. There, uh, then there was a global, the whole known world of the Mediterranean faced a famine and that crisis. There is crisis after crisis after crisis in his life. Now, I love to study Joseph. Uh, let me give you my, my top five of Old Testament studies I love to do. I love to do Joseph. I just, I, I love to read about Joseph. Secondly, I love Enoch. Uh, thirdly, I love Nehemiah. Uh, fourthly, my goodness, I just absolutely love Joshua. And then fifthly, I love uh, Daniel. And um, all of those uh, uh, men in the Bible faced significant crisis. So as this period of our time, you may be hearing more of those people. But today you hear a little bit about Joseph. He starts in chapter 37. We, all the way through chapter 50, we begin to study his life. And we, we pick him up at age 17. He's 17 years of age. He is the, um, the 11th son. And uh, he is become, we find out pretty rapidly, he is his father's favorite son. He is his father's favorite son, which shouldn't amaze you that Jacob had a favorite son because Jacob was raised by two parents who had favorite sons. It's amazing how we parent the way we learn how to parent in our homes? So many times, his parents were favorite to, to practice favoritism, and so did uh, so did Jacob. And Joseph was his favorite son. Now Joseph um, is, in, is interesting. How one of the first things we find out about him is he goes out to take find out how things are going with his brothers, and he's working with his brothers, and he comes back and he reports to his father what they were doing wrong. That's the first thing we find out. In other words. Daddy, do you know what my brothers were doing? What do we call that? Tattletale. The eleven brothers are now upset with him. Then his father makes a a coat for him that, that obviously showed his favoritism for his son. And then... And then they come, then he comes down after waking up one day, he comes into the presence of his brother and said, you know, I had a dream. And there were um, 11 sheaves and, and, um, and then I was a sheaf, but I, my, I stood straight up. My sheaf was straight up and the other 11 bowed down to me. Well, you know, they got that picture pretty quick. They didn't need divine intervention for that interpretation. And, they, and so uh, that pretty, and that, that wasn't enough. He had another dream. Isn't it amazing that God? God gives um, insight to certain people and they don't know when to share it and how to share it. Well, Joseph is a prime example. He comes to his, uh, come down to his bunch. and says, hey, another dream. And by the way, this one not only did have stars bowing down to me, but the sun and the moon bowed down to me. Of course, that was it. And pretty quickly, Jacob said, are you saying your father and your mother and your brothers are going to bow down to you? And then the text says the brothers aided him all the more. But his father remembered and pondered this thing. Then his father sends him out to find the brothers, and the brothers have had enough of Joseph, and they put him in a pit. And they sell him into slavery. They probably would have killed him except for Reuben's intervention. And he's sold into slavery and he is bought by this man who is likely the head of what we might call the imperial guard of Pharaoh. And his name is Potiphar. He is a captain of Pharaoh's guard. And he takes him into his home and pretty soon uh, uh, the um, uh, Joseph rises right to the top. Now, you'll remember back when he was 17, it said he was handsome in appearance. And now that's about to get him in trouble as Potiphar's wife attempts to seduce him. But he says, no, he gives five reasons why I can't sin against God. I can't sin against Potiphar. I can't sin against marriage. I can't sin against you. I can't do this great evil thing. And she, when she gets his robe, concocts a story. Potiphar, to some degree, believes it and puts him right into jail. So he goes into jail. As soon as he walks into jail, he sees two cellmates that are with him, two fellow prisoners. And they are, one was the baker for Pharaoh, the other was a cupbearer for Pharaoh. And now and now, another crisis is about to develop. He not only had a personal crisis and then a family crisis and then a crisis of his employment as he was a steward for Potiphar, but now he's been put into jail and he sees two men. They give him the dream. He gives them the interpretation. It means death for the baker and restoration for the cupbearer. And he says to the cupbearer, when you are restored, remember me uh, to Pharaoh and see if you can get me out of this situation. Of course, he forgets he is restored. The baker is hanged. the, The cupbearer is restored, but he forgets. And so now uh, and now the crisis of disappointment as Joseph continues in, but he rises to the top and is over the whole prison as the uh, prison keeper finds a man that he can trust. And then Pharaoh has a dream that nobody can interpret or nobody wants to interpret uh, for him. And so um, he's he is uh, befuddled by it. And the cupbearer who is right next to him would realize. And he said, you know, I've got a guy in prison over here. I think he can help you. And Joseph comes. He interprets the dream. Seven years of fullness, seven years of famine that is going to be extraordinary. And so we need. And then he gives him a plan on what to do. Pharaoh ends up saying the spirit of God's on this man. And so he makes him what we, you know, I like to call the vice president of Egypt, maybe more, more appropriately would be the, uh, um, the uh, prime minister of, of, um, of Egypt. That's what he is. He's second in command. The only man above him would be Pharaoh himself then comes the days of the days of plenty they they garner everything the famine hits and it strikes the whole global world there's another crisis that joseph is in the midst but he has a policy in place in which egypt is protected and becomes a source of a resource for others to come and who comes but his brothers sent by his father they arrive and Joseph is unnoticed or unrecognized by them, but he knows his brothers. And so he begins this point uh, points of intrigue and sends them back. And, um, and then they come back and he keeps one of the brothers, Simeon, and sends them back and tells them he won't give them anything until they come back with Benjamin. And the father, Jacob, returns and then they come in for the meal, and he ultimately reveals himself. And now we get to this final scene. Jacob has died. The brothers are obviously concerned. What will he do to us, given what we have done to him? What now awaits us? So somehow they send word to him. Uh, And the word is, your father, who has died... Requested that you forgive the evil that the brothers did against you. That they sinned against you. Then somehow they get in front of him and bow down before him. And they confess this evil we have done to you. Please forgive us. We are servants of God Most High. We are servants of your Father. And they bow before Joseph. We are your servants. And what does Joseph say? Am I in the place of God? I I am not the one to bring judgment. I am not the one to bring justice. I'm going to give you forgiveness in our relationship. Because God is greater than the evil you did to me. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Look at all that has occurred because of it. Joseph handles the crisis, personal crisis, family crisis, national crisis, global crisis, known Mediterranean world crisis. He handles it with equanimity because he's got a big God. God's a lot bigger than the crisis. God is bigger than him. His God is sovereign and is at work. And he's not only working by divine providence. He is working with multiple providences. That's where I want to close with you. Let me give you a takeaway. Let me just kind of bring this to a focus with you. Here is, here's what I want you to see. God's providence in moments of crisis, amazing moments, But in those moments of crisis, God's providence in moments of crisis is seldom singular in purpose or effect. But is better understood as his providences. Look at the plural. In his providence is actually providences of plurality. He's not only working in your life, on your life. To your life. He's working through your life. His providence wasn't simply what is God doing in the midst of all of this for Joseph. But what is he doing to Joseph? In Joseph? Through Joseph? To many others? For many reasons? He has multiple providences of how these moments are being used by the sovereign hand of God in the lives of multiple people. A plurality of people. God's working in Jacob's life. Now listen, Jacob, one of the reasons I love Jacob is I'm just challenged by this guy. I'm amazed at him. I mean, he gets thrown in a pit and what does he do? He becomes the best slave Potiphar ever had. Absolutely trustworthy. He's... He is hes convicted in a kangaroo court. He's thrown into prison and he walks in. And instead of going to a corner in self-pity, he he handles two prisoners and begins to minister to them. He is abandoned when someone promised to remember him. They did not remember him. And what does he do? Well, he just rises to the top of the prison and becomes the trustee that's in control of everything, reporting to the warden. Then he gets into the house of Pharaoh, pit, Potiphar's house, Pharaoh's house. He becomes prime minister of all of Egypt. And what does he do? He brings thoughtful, wise public policy to not only benefit Egypt, but benefit the surrounding nations and will benefit his brothers and the burgeoning nation of Israel, a covenant nation with the Lord. This is what, but listen, Joseph didn't start off that way. Joseph was handsome, loved by his father, and he ended up hated by his brothers. Why? Well, it was wrong for his brothers to hate him, but it was wrong for him to give the reasons. What does he do? God gives him something and he goes down and shares it with his brothers in a manner that is self-serving. He doesn't even consider his brothers. He is at best immature. When God reveals something to us in his word, he expects us to use it in love, truth in love. But he kind of, I can just imagine that day, I don't know whether it was, I don't know whether it was at lunch or supper or sitting around a campfire looking at some sheep and he says, hey, I got a dream for you. Uh, here's me and you're all bowing down to me. And then uh, and he can see their reaction. So he comes back the next day with another dream and says, well, not only you, but now my father and mother are going to bow down to me. But now they come. And if you read Joseph's life, when the brothers come for the food three times, it says they bowed to him. The old Joseph might have said, hey, do y'all remember a dream? Are y'all bowing down to me? Do y'all remember the dream that I shared with you? Doesn't even reference it. Their bowing down becomes an occasion on him three different times, weeping. Weeping for where they are and where he is. God's at work in Joseph's life. And then God works not only in Joseph, but through Joseph. And Joseph is now used of God in the providences to deal with his father, Jacob. Jacob was what? Jacob was a man who had parented with favoritism. But at the end of his life, he ends up blessing all the brothers, not just Joseph. And after Joseph was gone, he picked another one to be a favorite too, and that was Benjamin. Benjamin. He even said to the brothers, he's my life. He even named him my life. My right hand. In the midst of all of this, Jacob is brought to a proper view of all of his sons and not just his favorites. And then God's at work in the brothers. Look at the providence of God in the life of the brothers. Now stop and think about this. These brothers got mad at Joseph because of what he was the favorite and they hated him for the dreams and he was the favorite now who's the favorite Benjamin and finally the whole the brothers get there for a feast a, a meal a banquet and they're all and as they're set uh, as they're set down how are they set down they're set down in order of their age now would y'all mind telling me what are, the brothers have got to look at each other and say? Uh oh! Look how we're sitting. Look at this order. What are the chances of that? And Joseph is starting to gain their attention, but he's not through. He puts five times as much food on Benjamin's plate, and he shows what. Favoritism. What will the brothers do now? They do nothing. No longer are they jealous. No longer are they envious. God's not only working on Joseph. God's working on Joseph into Jacob's life. God's working on Joseph into his brother's life. Folks, right now in this providence, God's working on your life. God's working on our church. But God's not just working on us for us. God's working on us to us to work in others through us. His providences are multiple. But not only in multiple people, but multiple events. I wished I had a lot more time for this for you, but all of this is happening. Why? Well, we knew it was going to happen. How do we know it? Well, you go back some years, quite a few number of years. You go back three generations and you get to a guy named Abraham. And in Genesis chapter 15, Abraham is it is revealed to Abraham that God has a covenant with him. Not only is he going to have a seed that is Isaac, but his seed is going to be like the sands of the seashore, like the stars of the sky. That's what that's what he tells him. And then he cuts a covenant with him. And then Abraham falls asleep and in his sleep, he is darkened and he's, he's disturbed. And then God tells him why he says, because your seed, your people, your offspring, this nation that I am going to bless other nations through this nation will not only be established to bring the seed, speaking of Christ, but I am going to put. Your people in a nation and I'm going to put them there and they're going to be in bondage for four hundred and thirty years. Well, How did they get there? Well, first of all, God put Joseph in in the land of Egypt. Then God brought the famines and then the famines brought the brothers and then the brothers end up staying with Joseph. And now the next 400 years, God's nation is going to be matured and multiplied and mobilized to do what? Abraham. Then I will bring them back to the promised land. They will remove the Canaanites when their iniquity is full. And then I will make my nation. And in that nation, I'll bring a seed. And then through that seed, I will bless all the nations. Of the earth. God is multitasking not only in the people in this providence, in this crisis with Joseph, but also through the events as God establishes now a nation that He is going to mature and multiply and mobilize over 400 years in the place of Egypt by bringing them there. And then in the midst of that, he's not only establishing his covenant nation, there are nations starving all around the Mediterranean, and God is feeding them. Do you see that God's providences are not only providing the line of redemption and redeeming grace, God's providences are also reaching out to the lost with common grace as he provides food for them. And so it is in every crisis that God's providences are work In his redeeming power to save and and sanctify and 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 send his people. But also in his common graces to restrain the effects of sin. And that common grace is a call to repentance and to flee to Christ. Multiple people. Multiple events. God's providence is seen in providences. And there... You see multiple purposes. Joseph is matured. The brothers receive the redeeming work of grace. His father is matured. A witness is put in Egypt. The blessings are put to the nations around them. But in those purposes is also the development of Joseph's personal life. Instead of an immature Young man. He's now so mature that a pagan emperor, who's probably the most powerful man in the whole world, looks at him in amazement and trusts him and says, The Spirit of God is upon this man. And in him, we have a pattern for Christ. Oh, I wished I had the time to take you through his life and see the pattern of Christ. And in this occasion, we see a one of the brothers, his name is Judah. And he says to his father, to his father, he says, father, let Benjamin go with me, with us. If you don't let Benjamin go with us, we can't get the grain and everyone's going to starve. And he says, but Benjamin is my life. And Judah says, I will give myself for him. It is the seed of Judah. Who gives himself for us? Christ the Lord. The purposes are so glorious, not only in, Joseph, in personal lives, in the pattern of Christ set by Joseph, the anticipation of a Redeemer through the tribe of Judah, the establishment of a nation that God is going to bring to the promised land, and then bring glorious work of grace into our life. Listen, I. I I'll just let me just end this way. How many times could we just go through the Bible and see event after event like this through the lenses of God's providence and the providences that come? I mean, who who was the greatest apologist in the early church in Jerusalem? It was Stephen. It says that they could not stop him. They couldn't confound him. The way that he proclaimed. I'm deeply appreciative of Dr. Sinclair Ferguson for the insights on this. And now you see this glorious work of providences. When I think of God's providence, I think of four illustrations. God's providence is like my wife's needlepoint that she used to do, she doesn't do anymore. I don't know why, it's so pretty. But where she would work on needlepoint, and I'd look at the backside, and I'd say, "Honey, what do you what is that? What's what is that?" And she'd turn around, and let me see it. Now, from the backside, all I could see were multicolored threads and jumbled, and and everything was uh, tangled up, and everything couldn't hardly understand it. But I could see there's something going on. What is it? And she flipped it around, and let me see. Don't you see? That's exactly what God does with His providence. For us, we're on the backside. It looks jumbled. We don't see it. How in the world is God doing anything in this? But that's where you know how great your God is. And every once in a while, he'll flip it around and let you see what he's doing. Or, but it's really when you get to heaven, you get to see its beauty. Unhindered. Sometimes I like to think of God's providence as the game that my sister and I would play in the back seat when we would travel. You know it. Connect the dots. You ask the question, you get to put a dot, and then you get to connect to another dot, and you get to connect to the other dot. And I used to beat my sister all the time until she got to eight, and then she beat me all the time after she was eight years old. Do you see the dots God's connecting here? you see what looks like a jumbled mess? yet You get to see a little bit of the picture, the tapestry, the needlepoint. Do you see God connecting the dots? Another one I like is crossword puzzle. I think of God's providence as a crossword puzzle. Now, when you get across, I love to work crossword puzzles. It gets me through an airplane trip all the time. And I love to do the New York Times. And as I do the New York Times, usually it's a pretty challenging one. Do you know what? Maybe you don't do that. You know what I do? I go through the crossword puzzle. Where are the easy ones? And let me get something down to work from. And I find the easy questions first. Well, let me give you the easy ways to look at God's providence. God's sovereign. God's doing something. Nothing out there is arbitrary. God is at work. The, we are not accidents. This is not a series of what's going to happen next. This is the hand of God at work. And I love the way Tolkien and Lewis would put it. They look God's providences are unfolded in the midst of catastrophes. But because it's God's providence, they're really not catastrophes. He loved to call them U catastrophes. EU stands for good, good catastrophes. And then the last one, of course, is a jigsaw puzzle. That's what we would do on vacation, family vacation. Jigsaw puzzle. Do you like to do a jigsaw puzzle? I'm a, I'm brilliant at it because we would do a jigsaw puzzle and on the front of the box it would say uh, 12 to 15 years. And, and you know, I turned to the kids and said, look, it only took us three days. And, uh, no, I'm sorry. That was the age, right? But the reality is, how'd you do the uh, Maybe you don't do it. That's the way I do the jigsaw puzzle. I find the four corner pieces, put them down. Then I look for every straight edge piece and get it framed. Then the third thing I do is go to the box and look at the picture. What's this look like? Here's the problem. On this side of eternity, you don't have the picture. God's got it. Now you're trusting him. He is using you to accomplish that picture. You go ahead and put the corner pieces in. Good theology. Big doctrine of God. Understand God's providence and His multiple purposes. And watch what God is doing. Stephen. What a great preacher. And he gets killed. God, how could you? Your burgeoning infant church. How could you allow Stephen to get stoned? But look who's standing there, and God uses this to begin His work of conversion. His name is Paul, who will take the gospel throughout the world. And then Paul will get to a place like Philippi. What happens at Philippi? False, uh, false judgment, thrown into jail. Then God delivers them. What happens? Prisoners get converted. Harry, how do you know the prisoners were converted? Something happened to prisoners because when gates fall out, every prisoner I know leaves. These stay. Something happened in their life. Then the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Now God, now God has given to Paul the Philippian jailer and his household to go with a delivered teenage girl who is possessed of a demon and a, and a a wise businesswoman named Lydia. Now we got a church plant in, in Philippi all through the crisis of a false imprisonment. That's what Paul was doing. That's what God was doing to Paul, through Paul, to many others. Multiple providences. Of course, the greatest one for me is, was there a greater crisis and catastrophe than sinful men putting the Son of God on a cross? But it was there salvation was secured. It was there a dying thief was converted. It is there that the godly women were established. It is there that John was commissioned. And it was from there he went to a tomb and he rose again. And because he is risen and lives, you and I can live. So, my friend, know that Savior. Listen to me. Listen to me. I'm not simply preaching this for you to cope with a crisis. I want you to know the God of glory who is sovereign, who can save you from your sins and then send you into the crisis with the full knowledge, the providence of God, It's got multiple providences in this. God's doing something in me, to me, through me. Many people, many events, many purposes are being accomplished for his glory. Therefore, I'll trust him, but not tempt him. I'll live with prudence, but I will not panic. I will live fearlessly. Because of his faithfulness. And I will serve him. With anticipation. God. What are you doing. For your glory. And our good. Let's pray. Father thank you for the moments we could be together in your word. Thank you so much for the blessings of the gospel of saving grace in Christ. Would you now work in the hearts of many. Just take a few moments in silent prayer. Do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Folks, this isn't coping mechanisms. This is the God of glory who will save you from your sins and that ultimate judgment and catastrophe. For those who don't know Christ at the day of judgment. This is your day of salvation. May I invite you to Him who not only works all things for the good of His people and secures all things for His glory, but can secure you today with forgiveness. And my dear brothers and sisters, lift up your prayers. God, help us live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present distress because of our confidence in you. God, may, you, may I ask you to please, every once in a while, turn the tapestry so people can see something you're doing and be encouraged. But in the meantime, help them have their vision fixed on Jesus, whose providence is not simply singular, but multiple. And then, Father, do your work in us and to us and through us, that many might see and hear Christ in these moments, in this day, in these present in this present distress. Do great works. Help us be ready for any event and accomplish your purposes. And in that, we will rejoice. Lord, we will rejoice in all things. For you are at work in all things. For our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: You have been listening to a message by Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reeder, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.